doing today? Amazing. Amazing. That's good. Uh, first of all, thank you for everyone for your prayers, uh, for your consideration, for dropping things off on our front porch while we suffered through our COVID quarantine. <clears throat> Nobody's contagious anymore in our family. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's still it's still holding on a little bit. I'm I'm feeling it. But uh, we're all overall we're doing better. So thank you so much for for your support over the last couple of weeks while we've been out of commission. Um, so we were planning on getting farther. We're in the the book of Matthew right now. In the book of Matthew for the last thousand years, and uh, we were going to jump into chapter 24 before Advent. And we had a couple weeks planned for that, but um, since we, we had to cancel a s- Sunday and, and I got sick and, and different things, I didn't want to split Matthew 24 up into parts. I didn't want to start it today and then say to be continued at the first of the year. Uh, so that left us with this kind of like one-off Sunday before Advent. So I asked my wife, Joanna, what she would want to hear from her pastor at a time like this. So I love you, you're beautiful, and I can't live without you. <laughs> that, was, that was for her, but for the rest of us, I want to talk about power. Uh, we live in what's called a pluralistic society. I've got a definition. Pluralism is a condition or system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority, etc., coexist. And this is what America is. We are Christians, uh, but we know that there are many other religious groups in the United States. There are political parties, there are socioeconomic groups, there are ethnic groups. One of the things that we pride ourselves in as Americans is being what's called a melting pot, this idea that lots of different cultures come together and they mix together in the United States. And that's a good thing. But one of the things that's been hard, I think, for the church for quite a while is in the midst of this pluralistic society, it seems like the amount of influence that we have is going down. Um, I uh, was reading an article by David French a couple weeks ago, who is a... um, political social commentator. And he mentioned in the article that that white Christians had a lot more cultural power 100 years ago than they do now. For instance, 100 years ago, the church, we all banded together and got the United States government to pass an amendment to the Constitution prohibiting the sale of alcohol. That's crazy. That's a lot of power. And that was largely the church that did that. We don't have that kind of power, it doesn't seem like today. It doesn't feel like we have as much cultural influence as we did. But in French's article, he talks about how even though we don't have the power we used to, America is a much greater, um, has much greater liberty for the church. And I've got a, a slide, you probably can't read all of it, but these are 15 Supreme Court decisions that have happened in the last 10 years that have expanded religious liberty in the United States of America. And 
in many important ways, we are far more free in the United States than we ever have been. And these, by and large, aren't close decisions. I think on that list, four of them were a 5-4 split on the Supreme Court. Many of them were unanimous. So the highest court in the land is working overtime to protect and expand religious liberty. But it still feels like in the church that something's out of whack. And I'd like to quote from the David French article. He says, the longer the American culture war persists, the more convinced I am that the distinction between religious power and religious liberty is the key to understanding the incredible angst felt by so many white American Christians. White Christians feel this angst even in spite of a string of court victories that have secured religious liberty from state interference to a degree that's unprecedented in American constitutional history. Simply put, religious liberty is increasing even as white Christian religious power is decreasing. Now that's good news for us as a people in this nation, but and this is something that French says as well, the truth is I feel more and more like a religious minority in the country I live in. You ever feel that way? You look out around the landscape of our nation and think like, nobody believes what I believe anymore. Nobody feels the way I feel about the way the country is going. Four years ago, uh, then-candidate Donald Trump uh, went to a Christian university, Dort University in Iowa, and he gave a speech. And the, the famous thing that came out of the speech was, this is when he said that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and he wouldn't lose supporters. That's what got all the press. But he said something else in that speech to a bunch of Christian college students and educators. He said, I will tell you, Christianity is under tremendous siege. Whether we want to talk about it or we don't want to talk about it, Christians make up the overwhelming majority of the country, and yet we don't exert the power that we should have. Christianity will have power. If I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anybody else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. Remember that. And so overwhelmingly, the church, we believed him. We, many of us, we didn't like his, the way he spoke. We didn't like some of his private ethics, but we thought he was going to stand up for what we believed in. And overwhelmingly, we voted him into office in 2016. We had him as our champion, the most powerful man in the world, in the highest seat in the land for four years. And now, in 2020, it seems that he's lost that power. And it kind of feels like we lost that power with him. I talk, talk to a lot of people lately, and, and a lot of us are angry about how the election went. A lot of us are afraid. There's a, a lot of fear in the hearts of Christians and that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? When, when we lose power, it doesn't feel good. It feels like we're losing control, like we're losing a grip on what's going on. And a couple weeks after the presidential election, this is kind of where we find ourselves in the church in the United States. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing this letter to the church to convince them that he is a trustworthy apostle. He's a representative of Jesus. He goes around the Roman Empire telling the world the good news about King Jesus. And the Corinthians, they've kind of soured on his leadership. See, he's, he gets thrown in jail a lot. He's, he's poor. He has to like make tents on the side to raise enough money for his ministry. Uh, he doesn't speak very well. He's just kind of embarrassing. And they're like, you know, there's a bunch of other guys that are way better apostles than you. We don't really think you're good enough. And so the whole of 2 Corinthians is Paul's attempt to convince the Corinthian church that, no, he is an a, apostle of Jesus. He, he knows the Lord Jesus, and they should trust him as their leader. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one on the floor uh, under your seat, and we're going to be on page 1029. But as we turn to 2 Corinthians 12, this is towards the end of Paul's letter. It's definitely a, a book that you should spend the time reading all the way through to get the full context. But Paul's been going on and on about his credentials as an apostle, trying to get the church to believe that he is worth listening to. And he says in verse 1, boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. Paul, it's a little confusing here, but Paul's using a first century rhetorical device. He's speaking in the third person. So this story that he's telling about this man, he's talking about himself. He's talking about this experience he had taken up to heaven, to the throne room of God. He sees a vision and he hears things from God himself. And he says, there are things that, that I can't share. There are things that I'm not supposed to talk about. But here's the thing. Knowledge is power. Um, if you know that, uh, if, you're, if you're a child of the 80s, you know that knowing is half the battle, right? Um, but we know that knowledge is power. Um, young people, it's school. Do you ever hear this? I know something you don't know. How does that make you feel? It hurts because that person has power over you. They know something. And what is it? You need to know what they know. And they can hold it over you. I used to work at the, the Salvation Army Croc Center, and there was a guy that would sit outside my office. And I'd go, and I'd walk through the halls, and I'd see him every couple of weeks. And, and we struck up a relationship, and, and every week I talked to him, and he had a new tale about some special thing that he knew that nobody else knew. Sometimes it was the fluoride in the water. Sometimes it was the helicopters that you sometimes see flying above what they're really doing. There's places in town where aliens are kept. And it, after a couple months of, of, of learning about him and, and growing to know him, I realized that he felt an extreme sense of power. I have this special knowledge that nobody else knows about. And it made him feel good and it gave him purpose. 
And Paul's talking about a very similar thing. Of course, his experience was real. He really did go up into heaven and have this vision of God, but he felt powerful. You wouldn't believe what I saw. I'm not allowed to talk about it, but it was amazing. Think of the power that would give you. But look what he says in verse 5. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself." So Paul says, I'm tempted to hold this power I have over everyone, to exalt myself, because I actually went to heaven, I saw God, I heard these unspeakable things. And he's tempted to be boastful and proud of this power. And it's so bad, think about this, it's so bad that God has to step in. He says God gives him a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan to keep him from boasting in his power. And for those of you that have heard this before, give it a little bit of thought. That's kind of crazy. Think about how God deals with your sin. When you're tempted, when you, when you feel proud, when you feel uh, lustful, when you covet, when there's things that are going on in your heart that you, don't, that you know you shouldn't have, what, what happens? Maybe you're reading the Bible or you're listening to a sermon and the still small voice of the Holy Spirit goes, hey man, you need to change. You need to figure that out. Let me help you. The conviction of God says something to your heart and you go, man, I, you know, I have to do that. I really should work on that. Or maybe it's especially bad and, and you ignore the conviction of God and then a buddy comes up and says, hey, I noticed this thing in you. You should really repent from that sin. You get rebuked by a brother or sister. That's, that's the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. That's typically how sin and repentance works for us. But what happened to Paul? God's like, no, no, conviction's not going to work. Rebuke's not going to work. I'm going to have to permanently disable you so that you deal with this sin. That's pretty nuts. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Some people think it's temptation. Some people think it's Paul's opponents. A lot of uh, commentators think it's a physical ailment. Uh, some of my commentaries said ophthalmia which is some sort of eye disease, malaria, epilepsy, migraine headaches. We don't really know what it is, but it's a consistent chronic problem that God gives to Paul to continually remind him that he's not the center of the universe. I don't think that says so much about Paul as a person, but about the glory of the experience he had. He had experienced something so powerful, so amazing, that the only way to keep his feet on the ground, apparently, was this thorn in the flesh. In verse 8, he says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times 
that it would leave me. He begs God, please take this thing away from me. And if it was you, can you imagine that? Like, I can. Think of, think of all, uh, let's say for, for just a uh, as a test case, let's say it was uh, an eye disease. We learn in the book of Galatians that maybe Paul had an eye disease. He talks a little bit about it there. So maybe he's got this painful eye problem. God, take this away from me. It's so hard to read these scrolls. I have to get way up close, and, and I, sometimes I mistake the letters. And think about all of the work I could do for your kingdom if I could see better. Think of all of the, the great ministry that I could accomplish on your behalf if you just remove this hindrance from me. And he begs Paul, or begs God three times. And he says, Jesus himself responded in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Jesus speaks to him and says, Paul, my grace is enough. You don't, you don't need this power. You don't need this superiority. You don't need to feel better than others. You need me. Jesus says, I don't want you to be powerful, Paul. I want to be powerful in your life. And the way I am going to show my power in you is through your weakness. Imagine suffering with a chronic illness, perhaps a constant stabbing pain in your eye. And Jesus says, I get to be big in your life when you are small. And so often I think we want power, but Jesus, he says he gives grace. Grace is, is a gift a favor, a blessing, love, joy, peace that passes understanding, all these promises in Scripture that are given to us. And Jesus says, that comes through your weakness. Look at the back half of verse 9. Therefore, Paul says, because of this, because Jesus showed up and, and shut me down finally and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. This is important. Don't miss this. Sometimes, sometimes I think that Christ's power comes in the fixing of our weaknesses. God, I've got this problem. I need you to come through. I need to show your, your miraculous healing power, and I will see that when I am healed. I will see that when, that when the situation is fixed. But that's not what Paul says. I will gladly boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Paul seems to say that Christ's power is not apparent in my life unless I am in a place of weakness. 
It takes Paul getting to a place of weakness, of dependency, so that Jesus' power comes alive in him. Verse 10, so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I take pleasure. Have you ever taken pleasure in something difficult, something hard? And we always, I think we, we have these like not really difficult situations that we can kind of fake into like, you know, I have a cold and I'm taking pleasure in my weakness. But what if there's a really bad thing that happens? Do you, do you instantly go to like, wow, this is an opportunity for Jesus to show himself big in my life? I don't. When your car breaks down, when you can't pay your bills, when you're lied about at work, when you're slandered, when your relationships seem to be falling apart, yes, now I get to see Jesus' power at work. I don't think that way. That seems crazy. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do I believe that? When I suffer, when I fail, when I deal with pain, loss, setback, that's the moment that I can truly be strong in Christ. And I often imagine that Jesus' strength will be displayed in how he gets me through hardship. You know, money's really tight and all of a sudden we got this unexpected check. Praise Jesus, he came through. The car's broken down, but the mechanic said, I ah, don't worry about it, I'll fix it for free. Praise God, Jesus came through. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says Jesus' strength is displayed in my hardship. It's displayed when the cable bill gets, sh the cable gets shut off and the internet's gone and we can't watch Netflix because we can't afford it anymore. When when I lost my job, not when I get a new one, but in the midst of my unemployment. As I battle with cancer, not when, not when I'm declared cancer free, praise God for that, but Jesus' power shows up in the midst of chemo. Paul's paradigm for how his life is supposed to work is radically different than most of us live day to day. And in this season, when we're coming out of a, a national election where so many of us are upset about how it turned out, afraid about how it's going to go, I think his way of seeing life is important. I have some concerns about the values and the priorities of the incoming government. I think it's possible that the church could lose more power, maybe even some liberty. There are issues uh, that, that Biden's team is, is poor on, issues like abortion. It's, it's not wrong for us to push back against that wickedness, to, to seek immigration reform, to, to seek reform in capital punishment and other issues that the gospel speaks to. 
Paul prayed for his weakness to be lifted. It's not wrong to see that and go, God, please deliver. But at the end of the day, our hope doesn't come from the church maintaining power. It comes from the church walking in weakness and recognizing that Jesus has power. Our, at the end of the day, our hope comes from the resurrection. And Jesus, the one who went through death and came out on the other side as our King and our Savior. And so as we are entering a season as a people in a pluralistic society where we may be a minority, living in a country that maybe we don't recognize anymore, that doesn't value the same things that we do, we can choose to be afraid, to be angry, to use whatever means possible to regain power, or we can choose to let Jesus' power show through us in the midst of our weakness. And honestly, that's harder. So what do we do? What do we do about that? How do we move forward? I think for most of us, it means spending less time watching the news, spending less time doom scrolling our social media feeds, and more time in God's word, more time devoted to prayer, fellowship with God's people. Because we need to let Christ's life in us become our primary influence. And I think for those of us that would call ourselves Christians this morning, we would say, yeah, Jesus is my primary influence. The, the things of God are my primary influence. But I have to confess, I spend more time on the internet than I do in the Bible. And that shapes me. That shapes me in ways that oftentimes look different than the ways of Jesus. But what if you're sitting here and, you, and you're not feeling that way right now? Maybe, maybe your guy won the election. Then be careful. Guard your heart against pride in power. Having worldly power is a dangerous position to be in. Remember what I said Paul's argument was in 2 Corinthians. Hey, Corinthian church, you can trust me. I'm an apostle of Christ. I've been with Jesus. And how does he make that argument in chapter 12? Look at, look at my weakness, just like my master. Because see, Advent starts next week. <clears throat> We're going to take four weeks and we're going to walk through the stories concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that he came to us, not in power, but in weakness, not in fame, but obscurity. We can fool ourselves into thinking that Jesus was weak so that we don't have to be. But that's not true. Jesus modeled the weakness that he expects all of his people to embrace. Why? Because in some crazy way, that's how we turn the universe right side up. By giving ourselves away, by laying down our life, by taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following him. That's where real power is found. And so we're going to, like we always do, we're going to take communion. 
And as you come up and take the bread and the cup, take it back to your seats, recognize that this meal is a meal of weakness. It's interesting, we meet, we gather as Christians on Sunday morning. Why do we do that? Anybody? What's important about Sunday? Worship God. Worship God. What? First day of the week. What happened on the first day of the week? Nobody knows. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. He conquered death. He defeated the enemy and he secured salvation for all of us. But when Jesus set out a ritual meal for us to practice, did he say, we need to do something that reminds them that I rose from the dead? He didn't. He designed something that would remind us that he died on the cross. That he willingly laid down power and accepted weakness, accepted defeat. That's the reminder that we get every week when we gather. We are not just a people of the resurrection. We are a people of the cross. And in the midst of this crazy political season, in the midst of this uh, pandemic virus that's making some of us sick and the rest of us libertarians, <laughs> if you really want the power of Christ in your life, in your family, in your nation, we have to be people that are willing to embrace weakness because that's when the power of Jesus is going to shine through in us. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.